Welcome back to Fathoms and Enneagram Podcast. We are so excited to be welcoming a guest who's very, very special to me in my life. Um, Brooke Garad is here from the Bonus Years Podcast. You should definitely check that out. Brooke and I actually met in college in Tennessee at Lee University, so we have studied music together. We've been in choirs together. We've just done all the life things together since we were wee babes. Yes. Wee babes. (laughs) So welcome, Brooke. It's so good to have you. Thank you. It's fun to be here. Oh, my goodness. Welcome. What can you tell us about Lindsay that she wouldn't want us to know? So much. We'd have to do a whole episode. (laughs) We're going to do a whole episode on Lindsay and Sam and all of their college experiences. Drama. Mm. (laughs) What is one fun memory that you have with Lindsay? Oh, one fun memory? We didn't have a lot of fun. No. No. (laughs) We worked very hard. Um, Uh, Is that because it was Lee University? Well, here's the fun one. Here's the fun memory. And Lindsay, you can censor this later if you want. Um, We had a party that we went to called a Passover party. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. you did. And um, we all dressed up as Bible characters. <laughs> and Lindsay was a leper. Lindsay and Sam came as lepers. <laughs> and I came as fruit of the spirit. And I just was like wearing all purple with purple balloons everywhere. I was just like was a giant great. bunch of grapes. And it's then like fruit of the loom <laughs> kind of inspiration or <laughs> fruit of the loom slash spirit. You do, you, do you remember <laughs> oh, the end of that yeah. story, though? Because the day after that party... Where we marched around the house seven times? Yes, we oh. did march around the house seven <laughs> times and then hollered. Like, I'm surprised we didn't get the cops called on us. Um, no, but the day after that, I broke out in a rash all over my body. And I was like, I this forgot is that the part. judgment what? of God for dressing as a leopard. <laughs> <laughs> But what I discovered you happened. You can't make fun of sick people or you become one. Yes. So what I discovered happened was that I took my costume out and I rubbed it in the dirt in my front yard to make it look really dirty. But I didn't realize that our lawn had been sprayed with like insecticides. So I was just like marinating my body in this insecticide. And the next day I could barely move. I, I was just a big giant rash. Oh God. Wow. That's that was the a worst. really fun part. Aren't you glad you know that now? Yeah. Well, that's, that's all I needed out of this episode. <laughs> Thanks for coming, so. Brooke. Have a good day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would love to hear uh, a little bit more about the bonus years, this podcast that, that we it was addressed. What, what is, when did you start it? What, what kind of, you know, brought this forward for you? What is it about? What, is, what are the bonus years? Oh, the bonus years. I'm so glad you asked. Um, no, I stopped working my job, um, not by choice at the beginning of COVID because I am chronically ill and immune compromised and I couldn't safely be out in the world anymore. Uh, at that point I started reevaluating everything in my life and realized I want to contribute in a different way. I want to do something that I haven't done before. Now's the time. Like, why not? So my husband and I were brainstorming. Like I said, I think I want to do a blog. I'm not sure because I've always been a writer. And 
he said, why don't you share your experience and call it the bonus years? Because I had a liver transplant. Uh, it's almost 18 years now. And after that, like after that day, everything was a bonus for me. Um, I thought I was going to die when I was 20 and then I, you know, now I'm 37 and I'm still here. And so I try to look at everything as a bonus, a bonus year. Um, it quickly evolved into a podcast. My husband is an avid non-reader. So he said, you know, your blogs are great, babe, but, uh, you could reach a whole different demographic if you did podcasts too. He's like, I'll listen to a podcast, but I'm not going to sit down and read a book. (laughs) And so we started the podcast together. Uh, He was asking me questions about my health. The whole first season is just me telling my story. So we talk about our faith and our questions about faith and my health and what that's brought out in our life and in him as a caregiver. And then after season one, I decided I'm ready to start interviewing other people who are chronically ill and have stories of hope. Um, that people can share authentically so other people feel connected. So now I have guests, most of them on the chronic illness spectrum. Um, I've had Lindsay and Sam on the podcast to talk about the dynamics of getting married and then one of you becoming ill and one of you becoming the caregiver and how that affects the relationship dynamic. Mm. Uh, We explore all sorts of topics, um, some of which are hard to talk about, and some of which are taboo uh, by the standard of most people. And I love every second of it. I love talking to the people I get to talk to and hearing their stories and bringing out what they want to share. And storytelling is just such a part of our DNA as people. And so I just always want to give a platform to people who want to share that. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. And and when did that start? 2020. Wonderful. And... Uh, What's what's one episode that if someone wanted to go listen to your podcast, what, which one would you suggest? Hmm. I really love the episode I did with Katie Beth Eller. She's a therapist and a coach and um, a friend from college. We attended the same college but didn't know each other at the time. And we talk a lot about queerness and chronic illness in sacred spaces. And it's been one mm-hmm. of the most powerful conversations I've had that's led to a lot of other conversations and that's mm-hmm. the one I would recommend for people to start with yeah yeah well um when you first started this it sounded like if I heard you correctly your husband was kind of the one that was pushing you toward uh starting a podcast instead of, instead of a blog what I'm I would assume like it's a little bit more vulnerable to like speak into a microphone and name things out loud for everybody to hear than writing it like when when and how, what, did, what was that actually like for you experientially when you knew, hmm, I'm going to be telling lots of people this out loud. <laughs> how did that, how did that feel? What was that like for you? And how was it when, like the first few episodes when you're just naming that for people? That's such a good question because I'm an Enneagram three and uh, I've, mm. I lived most of my life in a performative way, meaning I shared what I wanted to share. I appeared as I wanted to appear. People only knew me as I wanted them to know me. And I made a conscious decision when we started doing the podcast that I was going to be vulnerable and authentic and share not just the good side of what's come from my story, but also the really challenging, the really faith questioning, the really society questioning things that I'm dealing with in my own life. Uh, It was terrifying. I'm not going to make it sound like it was easy at all. And 
I'm, I'm grateful that my husband was the one who interviewed me for that whole first season because oh. he, he knew what questions to ask that would draw out uh, my authenticity. And it was a lot of good conversation for us after the kids went to bed. You know, we'd just go up and podcast and have these conversations that were really meaningful and helpful to our own growth. Mm-hmm. What did you imagine would happen with uh, you you talking about these things? You said there was some fear and some anxiety around that. What was that, those imaginary scenarios that you thought would happen? Ooh. By making the conscious choice to be more vulnerable, I was aware that I wasn't going to always be popular um, and easy to digest. Um, I grew up in the church. I grew up working in the church. And for me to say some of the things that I said, it was it was out loud for the first time in a way that I knew that people would perceive me differently. Mm-hmm. And that was hard for me, um, including like family dynamics. Like you put a yeah. podcast yeah. out there, your family's listening. Yeah. You know, I sometimes forget we're recording because I'm looking at the faces of people that I'm enjoying talking to. And later I'm like, holy shit, (laughs) everybody in the world can listen to this if they want to. Right. Um, Yeah. And so it was this this fear of letting people in and not being liked. And what would I do with that? What would I do if people decided they were going to, you know, challenge me or question my authority on myself? Um, And it's led to some really interesting things about my own health journey because I realized I was a very good student growing up. I was a very good disciple. I was a very good kid. And then when I got sick, I was a very good and compliant patient. And somewhere along the way, I lost my own voice and my autonomy. And this has been the beginning of me rediscovering my own values and choosing to be an active participant in my life rather than letting others decide it for me. Yes. That's beautiful. Wow. Thank you. If it's, if it's okay with you, uh, we would love to hear a little bit more about your story, uh, with, with chronic illness. Would you be up for sharing that with us? Of course. So I grew up completely healthy. I don't remember ever getting my blood drawn. I don't remember anything but checkups as a kid. I had a tonsillectomy when I was like four, but you know, like typical kid illness stuff. Um, I had big dreams for myself. I wanted to leave my Southern upbringing. So for me, leaving Mississippi and going to Tennessee was like progress for me. Moving North, I'm getting out of the South. And I ended up at Lee University where I met Lindsay and a lot of other really, really dear friends. And halfway through my college career, I was on choir tour over spring break. I got sick pretty suddenly, but it wasn't enough that I thought anything was wrong at that point. Um, It was when I came home after finals that my mom looked at me and she was like, something's not right, right with you. Like, let's go, let's go get a checkup. Let's see what's going on. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I thought I was fine. Um, But my mom (laughs) Her intuition knew better. And I hate that she's always right about stuff like that. It's really annoying. (laughs) Uh, So I went for a checkup. They drew blood. They did all the tests and said, we'll call you in a week with the results. After um, one night, I got a call the next morning. Hey, we want to come. We want you to come in. 
and we want to run some more tests. And at that point, I remember thinking, well, that's got to be bad if they call you the next day. So I went in and found out that I had hepatitis and they wanted to know what kind of hepatitis I had and uh, found out that I didn't have, I call it the alphabet hepatitis. So I didn't have A, B, C, D, whatever letters there are now. And so they were like, I guess it's autoimmune. And I didn't really have too many answers. Um, I saw a hepatologist, a liver specialist, and they told me to hydrate, eat popsicles, rest, and that your, your liver is amazing and it'll regenerate itself. And so I did that uh, to a point. And I had worked for an opportunity at school to sing in this particular um, choir. And it was time for me to go back or I would lose my spot. And against my doctor's wishes, against my parents' wishes, I said, I'm going back for the summer to sing. Like, this is a a once-in-a-lifetime shot. And no one was happy with me. I was really happy with myself. I was like, ah, I'm in charge of my life. I'm 20, whatever. And I got up there to school. We were in the recording studio, singing around locally. And while I was there, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night with just one sharp pain in my side. And it was enough for me to go, I need to go to the doctor. And went to the ER and they immediately put me into ICU uh, in a very small community hospital in Cleveland, Tennessee. And I couldn't wrap my head around what was happening because the last thing I heard was hydrate, rest, you'll be fine. And I got to the hospital and they were like, you have a ton of fluid weight uh, your liver's not functioning properly. We don't know what to do with you. Hmm. Um, so I called my parents, who were six, seven hours away, and said, hey, I'm in the ICU. Come. I don't know what's going on, but come, please. And, you know, it, se- it seems like a heavy story. Uh, at the time, I didn't realize how bad it was. Uh, hmm. I remember being the 20-year-old complaining that they wouldn't let me have McDonald's. <laughs> Like, I was like, please bring me a Big Mac because I'm hungry and this food is terrible. And they, the doctors were literally trying to figure out, like, how do we help this girl survive? And through some amazing friends of my parents uh, who knew how overwhelming the situation was for my family, um, they presented us with, here are some transplant centers for you to choose from. I did the research. Here you go. Uh, That looks like the next step. And so I ended up flying to New Orleans on a hospital jet and the the ambulance wouldn't stop at McDonald's on the way to the airport. And I was so mad about it. Wow. (laughs) I could be a McDonald's ad. I'm pretty sure. Um, So I get to New Orleans and they're ready to put me in ICU and the doctors come in and say, you're talking, you're walking. And I was like, yeah, like, what's your point? Um, And they said everything on paper looked like I should have been in a coma. And it made no sense to them why I was like still a functioning human being at that point. Um, And because of that, I didn't realize how bad it was. Um, So when the team started talking to me about, you know, your liver, it regenerates itself, but we're going to do some biopsies and some high dose steroids and see if we can kick it into gear because it's not doing that. Uh, All of that didn't work. And so I spent several weeks on like high dose steroids, not sleeping, body aches, trying to figure out what on earth was going on with me. And at the same time, feeling this responsibility uh, to be a good representative for God, 
um, because of my upbringing. I was like, this is a testimony. Like God's so proud of me. Uh, I have to, I have to make God look good. Like things you don't, you don't say out loud, but you think, right. And so when the team came in and said, you know, your best option is a liver transplant. I remember that was the first time I said, well, what if I don't want that? Like what, what's going to happen if I choose not to do that? And they said, you might live a week. And (laughs) it was like an immediate switch flipped in my head. And I was like, okay, let's go. Like, let's do it. So I got put on the transplant list, which is a lot more complicated than I'm going to go into. And Mm -hmm. within three days, they had found a liver match for me from a deceased donor. And I was transplanted Mm -hmm. three days after um, I got on the list. And since then, I've been faced with a lot of other chronic health challenges because I'm on immunosuppressants and they have side effects. And uh, a year after that, I got West Nile virus uh, from a mosquito bite and lost my ability to talk and walk and see and sing all the things that I really enjoyed doing. And then a year after that, I got this wine flu. Uh, And so those first three years were intense and really like every time I say it, I'm like, this is a ridiculous story. This is one of those like unbelievable stories. Like, oh, one in a million people have this. I'm like, that's usually me. I'm that one in a million over and over and over. And not in the special way. I'm not winning any awards for it. So that's the story of how I became a chronically ill person living in the world. And there's a lot more. <laughs> but I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been a lifetime. So here we well, are. I d- I just want to say, um, yeah, communicating some of the really, I know you've probably talked about this for a while, especially having a podcast, but I'm just holding it like feeling that just, it feels pretty raw to me to hear the intensity of, of a human being going through so much. So I just, I'm holding, I wanted to hold the, hold that for a minute, you know? Yeah. Really, really feels sensitive to me. It actually is bringing up emotion for me. Uh, I see that. For some reason, so. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. And it is, it is raw still mm-hmm. to a degree. Um, when, when you're diagnosed with a chronic illness, essentially what that means for people like me is that there's no end in sight. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can feel really heavy some days, especially days where there's a lot of pain or a lot of isolation or a lot of mental health challenges. And so the reality of the heaviness is that it's always there. But the other reality is there's some levity to be had. There's community that we've found in each other. And there are still ways we can be supported and grow and not feel completely hopeless and despairing like it feels like sometimes. You know, I did want to you know, jump in and, and say how thankful I am that you're sharing your story with us. I think one of the reasons we wanted to hear about your story is because I think it raises a, a really important issue kind of in our little Enneagram world, which is that oftentimes when we talk about the Enneagram, we often reduce it to a pretty simple shorthand for understanding people. And if we're really honest, understanding everything that we feel we need to know about people, right? So it becomes kind of this homogenous, stereotypical kind of shorthand, which doesn't right. really honor the complexities of everything you just shared. Mm. 
and you know and you even stopped yourself saying there's so much more I could say right and so one of the reasons why I wanted to hear stories like yours in this season is because it helps us really get into the dynamics of personhood which certainly includes personality but but also uh, I hope gives space for and honors uh, one's stories which certainly include being a type you know whatever <laughs> but also uh, gives space for the this arduous journey that you've been on with chronic illness so i don't know if you have any thoughts on that before we get into any more questions oh drew you just tapped into a wellspring of thoughts <laughs> um i i stumbled upon the enneagram when i was working with um, an internship program and started teaching the basics of it to my students before I had even fully formed my own ideas about it. I just knew there was something to it that I valued. Um, And I've always valued self-awareness. That's something I'm like, everybody needs to know themselves and you can't really know other people until you know yourself. And uh, when Lindsay shared with me um, kind of what the focus of season four is with you all, it was, it just kind of struck a chord in my heart because personhood is Mm -hmm such a a big deal to me. Um, I never want to be able to look at someone and say, oh, they're just an Enneagram three or, oh, they did that because they're an Enneagram four. (laughs) I'm a three also, Drew. So (laughs) um, it, it feels like it diminishes our value as human beings. And we need that connectedness to each other. um, And we desire to be known, but that's not going to ever come from a book about our type and it's never going to come from any personality profile we take. And this ties a lot into my chronic illness journey, but there's this autonomy component where uh, we can, we can look at what's what we're told about ourselves and start to believe that instead of knowing who we are. And I've felt that in the medical community. Um, I've, I've reduced myself to Oh, I'm a liver transplant patient. Oh, I'm a chronically ill person. Oh, I'm an Enneagram type three. Um, Growing up in conservative evangelical Christianity. Oh, I'm a good Christian girl. Like things that um, took away parts of my personhood. And I think by siloing out different parts of ourself, whether it's in the medical community, having an, a neurologist and a hepatologist and an OBGYN and like every doctor has a specialty, right? And they, they look at that one component of you and they want to fix that thing. And I'm the only person who looks at myself as a whole person. And so I have the responsibility of advocating for me and my wholeness and that's the same for me in, in the Enneagram space, that when I, when I coach people, when I talk to people, when I teach and when I research, I want to see whole people. And I think that that wholeness can't come from trying to put them into a type or a subtype. I think the Enneagram is a fantastic tool, and I really do buy into a lot of what the Enneagram does, especially in my own experience. Um, but it is a tool. It is not gospel truth. It is not the Bible. It is not everything. And that may not be a popular opinion, but I'm not really popular anymore. So I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's that. Well, it is a, it is a popular opinion on this podcast. Well, that's why we're all kindred company. So yes. yes. (laughs) Yeah. Drew, did that answer your question? Yeah. And and not only did it answer my question, I'm, I'm 
confident it will be really reassuring and affirming to a lot of people uh, with, you know, with their own stories, trying to make sense of how this reductionistic approach to the Enneagram and the whole of me, right? So thank you. Yeah. Brooke, what is it you said seeing the whole person? Um, when you when you're working with clients or just interacting with people, what does that look like, um, feel like to actually see someone as a whole person? Because you, you, we can never know the wholeness of ourselves on right. some level, right? So how do we expect to know the fullness of others? So what does that look like, feel like practically? Mm. Well, I'll, I'll lead with my feelings since I'm a uh, heart triad. And uh, I just get this feeling when I talk to people, um, even when I logged on and started talking to you today, it's, it's this sense of curiosity that you open yourself up to say, I want to be curious about this person. I want to know what they want to share with me. And I also want to create safety for them to be who they are without them feeling any pressure or limitations from me. Um, because I struggle to hear my own voice and know myself when there are any other voices around I think part of that is being a mom and being a wife. Like my house is just not a quiet place and I'm mildly introverted and I really enjoy alone time and solitude and quiet. And sometimes I just have to go and be with myself to say like, what do I actually think and feel? And so I want to create a space like that for people to say, Hey, I know you're a whole person and I know maybe you've forgotten parts of yourself along the way. And I want to be that safe place to, to be curious with you, to ask questions, to help you see patterns maybe that you can't see because they're too close for you at this point. And to remind people uh, that, that they are already whole. They're not having to strive for wholeness. That, that's one of the challenges I face with the Enneagram is that even in the Riso Hudson model with the levels of development, uh, it feels as a chronically ill person that we have to take these steps to become healthy, to become whole, to be our best self. Like you put in the cliche that works for you there. We have to strive. And I always want to be the best at everything I do. I used to just quit things if I couldn't be the best, because like, what's the point? <laughs> um, and so, so in the Enneagram world, it's such a challenge for me to coach people in a way that's like, okay, like throughout the day, you could feel healthy and you could feel average and it fluctuates. And like, how is that helpful? How is that a helpful model for a human being? Like, of course we are on a roller coaster of emotions and we should feel a, a range of feelings from anger to sadness to joy. Uh, but as a whole person, like we're already whole. We don't have to strive for wholeness. The whole reason I like Enneagram as a tool is not because there's a clear path, but because it allows me to ask questions of myself and other people that help us be more aware of our wholeness. Hmm. Mm -hmm. A question I wanted to ask to go back just a little bit. Uh, I just wanted to ask the specific question, if you could go a little bit deeper with it, uh, how has your story with chronic illness brought forward your personhood? Yeah, I don't know if I can properly formulate all the feelings I have associated with that, Abram. Like, I, I think my illness alerted me to the fact 
that I didn't treat myself as a whole person. Um, that I, up until that point, could be what I wanted to be, could mm-hmm. um, edit out the parts of myself that I didn't want people to see. and Still be, had the illusion of control. Absolutely. Yeah. And thank mm-hmm. God for my therapist, because that is like one of the themes of my life is you don't actually have control, Brooke. You have the illusion of it. And like, how can you hold things more open-handedly? Because it really shook me to my core that I had done everything right in my book and then got suddenly sick with an illness mm-hmm. and that it affected me not just until I had my liver transplant, but it affects every day, every minute of my life in some way now. Um, and the grief that came with that of dreams that I had or that needed to shift the boundaries I learned to have of saying, no, I don't want to do that or no, (laughs) my health won't allow me to do that. And so it's been a reawakening in some, in some ways for me of, I was born with this voice that no one else has, uh, with a a mind that no one else has, with instincts that no one else has. And my life experiences shape that, but I'm me. I am, I am a person. I'm an individual person who there's no one like me. There's no cookie cutter pattern I have to fit into. Uh, the freedom for me that has come from that is that I feel like I can be more myself Mm -hmm. Uh, because I'm not trying to fit into a box that's socially acceptable or uh, popular or cool. And maybe it's also just because I'm getting older too and I care a whole lot less about what people think. I do, I do things that bring me joy. (laughs) I do things that make me happy. Uh, I realize that life is short and that's not just because I'm chronically ill. Everybody's life, like we aren't, we aren't told how long we're going to be alive. And so, you know, we live in the now. We have the now. I'm not confident that if someone were like, hey, would you like to go back in time and have a do-over? Like, would you choose the path that you've had? Like, I'm pretty sure I'd still be like, no. <laughs> I would not want to go through all that pain. Mm. Um, but I'm now at a place where even though that, is also, that is true. What is also true is that what I have learned from my pain about myself, about other people, about empathy, um, about listening, about compassion, those are things I, I would have probably learned in a different way, but not to the depth that I have. Mm. Um, and I want to help be a catalyst for other people to find their personhood and their identity and be exactly who they were created to be. I remember this like wrestling that I had of feeling like I could pray, like, God, let me see the healing and the completion of this healing by my scars going away. Um, Like, I thought that'd be so dope. Like, I had a liver transplant, but you can't see my scar. I'm totally well. And I just remember going, no, the scars are the evidence of the internal work that's happened in my body. And Now I also relate that to a lot of things past my physical health, um, that we do have scars as people. We go through a lot of stuff. And because we go through it, we have some scars and some scar tissue. And that makes it more challenging, but it doesn't make it impossible to continue to heal and grow. Yeah, definitely. 
So Brooke, you've kind of shared with us about what you feel like the Enneagram has brought to your life and brings to the people that you work with. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk with us about any blind spots that you see within the Enneagram or any ways that you feel like it's kind of not served you well. Does that make sense? That definitely makes sense. There are people groups that the Enneagram does not serve well from my experience and in my opinion. Um, Chronically ill people are pretty consistently overlooked throughout the world. Um, And then in Enneagram spaces, it's been this conversation of uh, self-growth needs to look like this, needs to feel like this. Here are the paths that you need to follow. And Can you give some examples of that? I would love to. Um, so, so the one that I was just thinking about was that I feel like I need to put in the work every day uh, to develop myself and like be in tune all the time with my own thoughts and feelings. Mm. Um, if you're a human, that is exhausting. Like, mm-hmm. like it is okay to not analyze every single thing you're doing and try to mm. grow every second of every day. Like, please, for the love That's of God, have fun so and laugh good. and like, go bowling and don't think about what that says about your personality type. Like just do something, <laughs> do something fun. Um, That's an attachment style bowling right there. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I Gosh. bowled in the U S transplant games of America. Wow. <laughs> there you go. I'm a professional wow. transplant bowler. now. <laughs> I have my own ball. That's that's wow. next level. It is. So, so there's this element of like, we take everything so seriously sometimes um, and it's okay to just have fun. The other part of that for me is that chronic illness fluctuates. So, you know, when I wake up in the morning, I do like a quick check-in with myself. Like, how's my body today? How's my mind today? Um, How's my heart today? And some days it's like, oh, I have a severe migraine. I woke up this morning, like, kind of debilitating migraine and I have to make quick decisions on how I'm going to proceed with the day. And my husband has to adapt, you know, who's taking kids to school and how our work schedules are going to be. Um, and those are not the days for me to like dig into my self-development <laughs> when I'm in pain. It puts a filter on things that isn't helpful. Uh, and so when I think about my friends who I went through, um, training with, learning about Enneagram with, most of them are relatively healthy people, don't deal with ongoing stuff, they could put in the work every day if that's the choice they made. Uh, I am at the mercy of my health sometimes, and the challenge for me is I don't feel like I can ever be enough. Like, I can never be my full self as a type three because I can't put in the work the way that I need to put in the work. Now, all of those are like moving targets anyway, but uh, a lot of the Enneagram books that I read and podcasts I listen to, it feels like there's a really clear path for moving forward. Hmm. Um, And even the language of moving forward is a little bit ableist to me. Um, It's not enough to just exist in our bodies and be people, but we have to be constantly trying to make progress move forward, jump through the hoops, strive for something. 
I, when I have this conversation with people, then they start to notice it when they're talking Enneagram with other people because it's just kind of built into the language of Enneagram. And I want to always shed light on the fact that like ableism has infiltrated Enneagram to a degree. And that makes it challenging for people who are ill to figure out where they fit, um, to figure out how to proceed, to not beat themselves up because it's supposed to be a tool. Uh, and sometimes it gets put on this pedestal of like, I have to do it this way. Um, I also see that that blind spot with people of color in the Enneagram um, and in the chronic illness space um, of being overlooked and um, kind of whitewashing the process when it's actually going to look very different based on our life, our life circumstances. So your critique is that oftentimes there, um, there's, there's an assumption on the right path for, for you when it really needs to be about trusting your own, I guess, way of being in the world, knowing what you need in that moment and knowing what is, what is a step I need to take. And maybe that step is towards your bed, right? Um, Amen. Sometimes it's to Netflix, right? Um, right. Coping is not bad um, unless it starts taking of your life in a way that uh, is <laughs> causing you more harm, right? Um, right. So, so how would you adjust the language as for anyone listening to, to honor the, the different stories of people? But also encouraging them, like, yeah, you you do want to be better on some level, mm -hmm. right? What is what's that language there? I don't know if I have the language yet. Okay, um, I have the awareness, but I don't know that it's a fully formed uh, thing I can wrap my head around. When you said the right path, um, that resonates with what I feel a lot of times, like that mm -hmm. there's a right way, mm -hmm. and I'm not measuring up to it. Sure. Um, there's a best way and I'm not capable of it. Anytime we hear stuff like that, like that kind of triggers me in some ways because I, it makes me want to shut down. And then when you talked about, you know, tuning into ourself and what we need to do, like it's so much easier to write a book that has a formula mm -hmm. for people. Uh, it actually provides us a great way to escape actually evaluating our own self, what we need and what we want. And I think that's actually a disservice to everybody, not just chronically ill people that like, oh, I have a, a, an entire bookshelf of books over here on Enneagram. And in every one of them, at some point, there's going to be a path forward, a path through, a right way. And, you know, here's the book summary that I'm writing. You ready? Tune into yourself. <laughs> Period. Like... <clears throat> It's great to read all the things and have the tools, but like it's way harder to actually like know what you want and who you are. And I think that is the work of life. To me, this sounds, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of sounds like you're talking. I do a lot of cooking analogies. So for, <laughs> don't forgive me. No, there's nothing to forgive. Um, no, absolutely. Be you. <laughs> uh, recipes versus like knowing actually how to cook. Uh, it's very important as you're beginning to read the recipe so you understand how things work and what this does and what this does. But at the end of the day, if you're, you actually don't, when you're given ingredients that you do, you've never seen before when you're in an unpredictable kitchen 
it's you're going to be you're not going to know what to do and you're going to feel like you're doing it wrong because you haven't actually learned what the recipe has been trying to teach you. Yeah. Well, that's a great analogy because recipes um, are things I really appreciate in the mm-hmm. kitchen. I like to bake and they the measurements are precise. Yeah, absolutely. My husband likes to get in the kitchen and like make something delicious. And I'm like, how'd you do that? He's like, I don't know. I was just feeling it. I'm like, <laughs> What does that mean? Like he makes good food because of his instincts with that. For me, I need the recipe. Mm. uh, And then I can say, oh, I like this flavor. I don't like this flavor. I could add more. I could add less. And I think we're doing the same thing, just taking a different approach to it. He's an Enneagram 7. So he's like, ah, it's magic. It's fun. Like, (laughs) let's create things. Mm -hmm. Within our world, like we learn because of pattern. Like I'm thinking about parenting, like my kids learn what's acceptable based on what they're taught in school. Like, here's how you behave in school. Uh, They learn what's acceptable at home based on how we talk to them and how we teach them. And so you have to start somewhere and just starting somebody out by saying, you need to know yourself. Like, that's really unhelpful advice like yeah I know but like how do I get there and so I think all the resources we have are trying to point towards that but at the end of the day we have to be the critical thinkers and the person guarding our own wholeness to say this this doesn't work for me and this does and it's okay to to pull in the parts that I I can use and let the rest go yeah thank you yeah yeah um just for clarity on my sake too, because I'd like to understand. And if I'm if I'm trying to get clear, I bet there's other people too. It's one thing we've I think we've said around here is that how people do their sameness, their type is vastly different. Mm-hmm. And I think I hear you saying that what's too often been communicated is the a path for the type instead of a path for the person. Yes. And we've confused the two for being the same. Yes. Okay. That was a very clear way to say it. Okay. Brooke, I'm wondering if you can talk to us about how you practically approach suffering just on a day-to-day basis. Um, So uh, if I were to go back when I was like very strictly Enneagram with wings, I would say I'm going to lean into my four wing right now and feel all the pain and all the suffering with you. Um, I have my own personal sufferings that I deal with. A lot of times that looks like ongoing grief because of things I think I've missed out on, uh, things that I feel like have been stolen from me, things that I've given up against my will um, because I've had to stay alive, Um, but that Hmm. I miss the things that are life-giving. That's really hard that sometimes my body limits my dreams. Um, and it's something I took for granted for the first 20 years of my life that I had a dream. I pursued my dream. I just went for it. And now I have a dream and I have to break it into pieces and analyze it more and think about how can I do this in attainable ways and have to put limits on how much time and energy I can give that just to stay healthy enough to actually pursue it. Uh, And that feels really unfair. It feels really unfair that other people get to just go about their life and pursue their dreams and 
like from, from my perspective, when I'm feeling my darkest, (laughs) it's like, this is, this is so unfair. This is heartbreaking to me. Um, that the one thing I've always loved since I was born is music. Uh, my mom says I came out of the womb singing. It's very true. I have a cassette tape <laughs> when I was two of me singing, Jesus loves me. Um, it's been the first love, the truest love of my life. And at 20, when they decided a liver transplant would save my life, what they didn't realize is that they were going to sever my abdominal wall all the muscles, all the training, all the work that I had put in for this this dream, um, and that I was going to be alive in my body. I was going to have breath in my lungs. But then I also had to grieve that like my voice came back in a completely different way. And that's something I still grieve, and it's been a long time. And so it's just this ongoing, like when grief comes up with suffering, um, there's no time limit on it. There's no like, oh, you should be done grieving. Like, I think that's one of the worst things you can say to a person who's suffering is like, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. But like, it's time to pick yourself up and move on. Like you never, you never move on um, from scars like that. And that's okay. And I also have to put barriers around like how much input I receive because the world has so much suffering in it. And I want to be one of those people who contributes to alleviating suffering around me, but I'm also dealing with my own stuff. And so I've learned that like, I cannot take on the suffering of the whole world. Um, and we have, you know, media access to parts of the the world that we would have never seen, you know, 50 years ago. And it's, it's hard. Like when you're a feeler, it's very hard to watch that and just be like, oh yeah, they're suffering. I can't do anything about it. Um, but we also have to know our own limits. And sometimes, sometimes in my pain, I need to be alone. And sometimes in my pain, I need to serve someone else. And sometimes in my pain, I need to rest and say, uh, I can't think about this today. So today it's going to be a nap and some ice cream and playing with my kids and building Legos. And all of those are good and appropriate. And, you know, suffering is so close to my heart just because I've been through it. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. But I also want people to know, like, there is space for you not just to have air in your lungs and be alive in that way, but to come alive and still grieve and still process and still have suffering and still pursue the things that you're passionate about. Yes. That's great. Thank you so much. Well, friend, I I think I speak for all of us when I say that I, I feel very honored and grateful that we've been able to just bear witness to your story and your presence and um you are just you are a light and so thank you for sharing all that you've shared today and i'm wondering i i feel like a lot of our listeners will really resonate with the things you've shared and so can you let us know how they can find you um and if 
is it okay to reach out? Are you taking clients? Are you? Um, yes, I am taking clients and go, I'm going through some more coaching certification, um, to become a trauma informed coach, uh, because the last thing I want to do is re-traumatize someone who's been through, uh, the pain and suffering, um, that they've been through. And so, um, if you want to find our community, we're on Instagram and on Facebook at the bonus years. Um, that's where we connect with each other. That's where we find people who have similar stories um, in chronic illness and in transplant. And uh, you can go to my website, brokegrad.com, and find info about coaching, podcast, blog. The podcast is on all major platforms, the Bonus Years podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brooke. Really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. This is This was fantastic. It was such a great conversation, and I'm selfishly wanting to to have more conversations like this. <laughs> yeah, so. Same. Same.